Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris DeBlasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here as always with you. The Greatest Games Podcast is a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. It could be their time as a head coach, an assistant coach, just a game that is special to them and that they consider to be their greatest game. Well, we have another special guest to today for today's show. We're going back to the college ranks to Mawa, New Jersey, and Ramapo <clears throat> College's associate head coach, Pat Gabriel. Welcome into the show. Thank you, Brian. Uh, glad to be here. Pat the Gabriel. Great, the great mascots of college basketball, the Roadrunners. The Roadrunners. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we actually had two Roadrunners uh, and a uh, adult Roadrunner, and they had uh, Fledge for the longest time. And they retired Fledge, who was a baby Roadrunner, like two years ago. <laughs> well, Pat, Coach Rosefield, Pat Gabriel has the special honor of having coached with a member of the de Blasio family back <laughs> really? in the day. Let's, yeah. Let's we always love to hear more. Here. I always love de Blasio connections on the podcast. So there we have it. Uh, you were the freshman football coach along with the great Keith de Blasio at Elmwood park high school. Wow. I was, that was where, uh, where we met. It was, uh, it was a good time. <laughs> was it just the two of you? Or was there another guy? Nope. Just the two of us. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> What I know about Keith de Blasio and what I've learned about you, your coach early on, I, those those kids had to have a good time. Oh, uh, we did. They, it was uh, the program was was struggling at that point. I think they, the varsity was like in the middle of a forty eight game losing streak or something. And yeah, when when we came on and uh, they had a new head coach come in and they hired you know Keith and I, and so we. The big thing was, you know, you just didn't want kids to quit. You wanted them to come back as sophomores. So we weren't that bad. I think we were like around a 500 team. We won a couple of games. You know, freshmen at a small school, you play like six games. And uh, But, yeah, Keith and I had a good time with those kids. They worked hard. It was a good group of kids. Wow, that is awesome. At Elmwood Park High School. And another de Blasio connection, Brian. This, what, this is like the bonus episode. Give it to me, Chris. What you got? Elmwood Park High School used to be. East Patterson High School and was the first teaching job of the great Ron de Blasio in 1970 and 71. Legendary Ron de Blasio. Wow. Yes. This, I, don't, I don't, we just need to stop recording right now. And <laughs> this, this is unbelievable. When we, we get it, when you get into, well, Elmwood Park's actually in, is it in Bergen County or Passaic County? It's Bergen County. Bergen County. Okay. It's on the, on the edge of Passaic County. When you get into yeah. the North Jersey area, Brian, you know, it's going to be de Blasio connections all around. All right. I love it. <laughs> well, coach Gabriel here to talk about you. So why don't you take us through uh, your coaching resume and how you got to where you are working there at uh, Ramapo college? Uh, well, you know, funny, I, I'd been, you know, coaching, you know, like youth kids when I was in high school, I don't even know, you know, I'm a baseball guy at heart. And so I just remember somebody coming up to me and asking me, you know, do you want to, you know, get involved in, in coaching one of our rec teams or travel teams? I forget what it was. And I got the itch. So when I was in college, my senior year of college, I met, um, and Chris, I don't know if you know, um, coach Pete Vassell. 
and he used to be the Clifton head coach. Okay. And ended up getting the, he was the uh, Plainfield head coach uh, for a number of years. And, and so I was working at day camp in the summer, you know, college kids, you know, you get those day camp jobs and his little son, who's now not little anymore, <clears throat> but I was the counselor and he was looking for a freshman coach. And wouldn't, you know, we talked, we hit it off. The kid loved me, his little son, you know, who was like four or five at the time. And that was it. You know, I got the job. The, my first job was a uh, freshman basketball at Clifton high school for four years. I was the freshman coach for two and then the JV coach for two years. Um, and then from there, I got a uh, offer to be the head, head varsity coach at good council high school in Newark, which the school, it's a private school, but um, not, not open anymore. Actually, after I left Good Counsel, so I was there for one year, and then I ended up getting on Ramapo staff. And who took over for me? Who had to follow in my footsteps? But Allah Abdul Nabi. Oh wow, great Seton oh. Hall. Oh no, Duke player. I'm sorry, Duke. Duke played at Duke, and but he's he's From originally Newark, right? Or East Orange or Bloomfield. Bloomfield. I think he's originally okay. a Bloomfield guy, and um, he was back in the area. And when I left, he ended up taking the job, but um. You know, so I spent one year at that parochial school, got the job with Chuck up at Ramapo College for two years. And then I stepped away because I just gotten married and my wife and I were, you know, we wanted to have a family. And I just thought with the travel, because, you know, Chuck is a division one pl former player and he coached at the division one level. So he runs our program up, up at the college, like a division one program. So we do, we travel, we've been to Puerto Rico and Phoenix and San Diego. I mean, we're all over the country playing and it just, it was too tough if I wanted to start a family. So that's why I left Rampo the first time. And I ended up at Elmwood Park for six years. And then following Elmwood Park, I went back to Ramapo and I've been there now, I think nine straight years. It's just, it's a blur now, you know, you've been there so long. I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah. And so that, and that's where I am right now. You know, I was the number two assistant and then the top assistant left and moved down to Georgia and I moved up to the, uh, to the top seat. And that's why, you know, that's where I am now. You know, it's a, it's an interesting contrast. You know, <clears throat> I, when I was a graduate assistant at university of South Carolina, I chose to go the high school route and most guys in that position go to the college route. And it's very, it's fascinating to hear you go to the college route, punt for a little bit, go back to the high school route and then go back to college. I think that's a, that's a fascinating journey. And, you know, I think that's something that young coaches may not understand that time commitment at the college level. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about, uh, you know, your division three school, but it's still, it's still college basketball. It's big time college basketball. So talk about that, that time commitment and then how to maybe integrate that family life a little bit. It's, it's difficult. Um, the first thing you need, you need is to, you need to marry a saint. And my wife is, uh, she's an absolute saint because there are many, many nights where you're on the road and <clears throat> she's putting my daughters to sleep when they were younger. Um, or, you know, even, and, and now division three, although we travel, you know, our conference, the New Jersey athletic conference is all schools in New Jersey. So, you know, I'm, I'm still coming home most nights, but it might be two, three in the morning from a, from a you know, Wednesday night conference game. 
Um, the travel's a lot. It wears on you. You know, you're, you're out one night playing a game until two in the morning. And then the next night, you know, you're at a four o'clock game recruiting. And then you go to a seven o'clock game recruiting somebody else. And it's down in South Jersey or out in Pennsylvania or up in New York. And then you got to drive home and you're not getting home till midnight. And then for me being a teacher, then you got to get up early in the morning and do your job. You know, your, your, your actual career. Um, the travel gets, gets tough at times. And, and like I said, that's at the division three level. Um, you need really people in your life that are supportive, that understand that, that understand what your passion is. I'm lucky that one Chuck and I have become so close over the years, our families, um, you know, like when we've, we've, we've been fortunate enough to be very successful at the college and two years ago when we made our third straight NCAA tournament appearance, my wife and daughters came down to Virginia with us. So I get my room and typically, you know, assistant coaches, you share, you share rooms with assistants. He got me my own room so my family can stay with me. So now my older daughter gets to come on the bus and go to our walkthroughs and she's taking pictures with our SID, you know, for the, for the website and so on and so forth. So, the good thing is, you know, we are like a, uh, like a tight family up at the college and that makes it easier, but there are also college programs out there where it's, it's not like that. And, and you, you, you miss a lot of things. I mean, I've missed birthdays, you know, for of nieces and nephews and so on and so forth. And, and fortunately my family understands this is what I love to do. And it's part of the job, but I will say this, Early on, I always wanted, you know, everybody wants to get to the highest level and become a division <clears throat> division one assistant or, you know, division one head coach. I'm right where I belong at the division three, maybe division two level. I would not have been happy being a division one assistant where they're flying all over the country, you know, recruiting and stuff. I would not have been happy being away from my family that much. It is not an easy life on any level. And we always used to say, Plain sleep is still not good sleep when we would fly home late. And bus sleep is definitely not good sleep. No, <laughs> not at all. You've, uh, you've mentioned Chuck, Coach Chuck McBreen, the head coach there at Rambo College, who I've had the great fortune of getting to know very well. And, uh, Brian, another connection. Chuck McBreen was an assistant at Western Carolina University where he coached the great redhead, Brett Carey. You're kidding. No. Uh, So how about that? Our buddy that's at Indiana State played for Chuck for two years at Western Carolina back in the day. Um, And then you talked about Coach, was it Vassal at uh, Clifton? Uh, Talk talk to us about those mentors and what they've meant to you in your journey and maybe specific lessons you've learned from some of them along the way. The best thing I learned, Pete Pete and I were super, super close. you know, we, we don't have the same relationship anymore. And that's just because of, you know, you get older and, and, you know, I was 21, 22 at the time. And it was just my wife and me that we weren't even married at that point. We were dating. So now you have a family. So we, you know, you don't keep in touch nearly as much, but um, he was a master at promoting his program in town and keeping kids in Clifton, you know, Clifton in the old NNJIL, you know, Chris, I mean, I don't know if, if you remember, but you know, with TNAC, you know, you had mm. Teen Ridgewood, 
and Clifton and Bloomfield, Nutley. And now, and that's not even counting Bergen Catholic and Paramus Catholic and Bosco and Joe's. I mean, we were all together um, and it was a war every single night and Clifton just wasn't very good. And when Pete got there, Pete was able to keep kids from leaving and going to those private schools. And what the, the biggest thing he taught me was we would play like 40 games in the summer. I mean, we were just in the gym all the time and the kids wanted to be in the gym. And I didn't know about that end of high school sports about, you know, you, as a young kid, you think, oh, you go, you coach a couple months and that's it. And then I see him, all the workouts we did, the weight room. Um, and then next thing you know, you, you know, you're playing in the old, you know, he used to get us in the primetime shootout that used to be down at Sovereign Bank Arena. Mm-hmm. We played one year, um, Bishop Lachlan from New York City and the team playing right after us that we shared the locker room with was a team from Ohio, St. Vincent with James. <laughs> wow. And, and so, and Pete got us into an event like that. So he was just so good at doing that. So, you know, when I got to Elmwood Park, you know, years later, I just, I just knew, well, he was able to turn the program around just by getting those kids to work, you know, getting them to buy into the weight room and, and understanding that if you're only going to show up for three months, you can't win. You can't beat the T-necks and the Hackensacks of the world and the Boscos and the Joes. They're too good. You have to find a way to outwork them. And Pete was great at getting the kids to buy into that. So that was what I got from Pete. Now, from Chuck, it's a totally different animal. I didn't, you think you know basketball until you get to sit down with a college guy who at, and Chuck is like 52, 53 right now. And when I tell you, he is still the best shooter in the gym. Still, when we're in practice, as assistants, we have to yell at him when we do rebounding drills. We have to tell him, coach, it's a rebounding drill. Stop making them from 35 feet. <laughs> And he does it on purpose just to let the kids know that he can still shoot it. But when you sit down and I remember one of our first meetings sitting down and we're going over ball screens and my head is spinning. I'm a 27 year old. Okay. Just got married. You think, you know, all this basketball and you sit there and we're going over seven different ways to defend the ball screen. And I'm like, what happened to just high hedging it? You know, and and to this day, we have six, seven, eight different ways to defend a ball screen, you know, and I didn't know any of that. Um, you know, my philosophy, my system that that we ran at Elmwood Park, I took from Chuck, you know, how to press, how to run guys in and out. Um, you know, we used to use a sub chart at the college level where he didn't make any subs, the assistant, one assistant coach, that was their job to just send guys to the table. We play 12, 13 guys in the first half and just wear you down. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I, <laughs> you know, you have 25 different out of bounds plays and, and, and now high school, you can't do that, but you know, the X and O's, the preparation, he is one of the most prepared people I've ever met in my life. You know, people just see, Chuck, his intensity on the sideline, but the preparation that I have developed because I've worked for him, I owe that all to him, all to him. You know, the scouting report, our scouting reports even now are like 30 pages long with tendencies. I mean, it's a little easier now because, you know, a video mm. and stuff like that. When I first started, you know, 
you're looking at VHS tapes. If I, t- if I tell the kids VHS tapes now, they're like, coach, what's a VHS tape? You know, where you have to fast forward and rewind and, and it just takes hours. Now it's a lot easier, but um, yeah, you know, so, so both guys, I was lucky. Both guys were able to, I was able to learn different things that really helped me. All right, Brian, trivia time. Coach Gabriel mentioned Bishop Lachlan High School out of New York City. True. Oh, what, oh yeah, that's what that's current? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I'm even going to make it a little easier for what current Big 12 head coach played at Bishop Lachlan High School in um, New York I'm City. I'm going to go Mike B. Mike Boynton Jr. Oh, Very good. Yes. The only Former South Carolina player. player was a Bishop Lachlan uh, graduate. Yes, very good, very good, Brian. One for one on trivia today. You're. O- I'm always. I'm always teaching you. I'm always teaching you. Well, that's. Uh, yeah. Oh, that. there was one other thing I wanted to interrupt and say, Coach. At Saddlebrook, we have one way to defend ball screens. It's called pray the other team doesn't run a ball screen. That is our. <laughs> that's how we defend it. So we only have one way. We don't have seven. Hey, they had. They had the New Jersey Nets before they became the Brooklyn Nets when Lawrence Frank was the head coach. They Teaneck uh, High School graduate. Yes, that's right, Lawrence Frank. And he asked Chuck if they could use our Bradley Center for like a preseason for his you know training camp. Mm-hmm. Oh, Chuck said, you can use anything you want there. The only thing I'm going to ask is if I could sit in on your coaches' meetings. And so Lawrence Frank agreed. And Chuck said... He said to me after, he said, you think we have a lot of ways to defend the ball screen? <laughs> level. He went over 16 different ways to, to defend the ball screen. And he goes, I'm sitting there saying to myself, I don't even know what's really different about some of these ways, but it, it, you know, there are differences. He's like, it's, it's crazy at the NBA level how technical they are. He goes, you think we're nuts at the college level? He goes, it's even worse at the NBA level. Coach, you, you talk about preparation now. I've known you for about 23 minutes now, but I can tell you right now that you're a great assistant coach. I can just I can just tell that you've got it. You talk about Coach McBreen's preparation, 30-page scout reports. The question, the end question I have is how do you contribute to him and and, and taking initiative if this guy is as prepared as you're talking about? Uh, how do you show up as a good assistant coach? And I, a little bit of a story from today I was doing work at my day job and I was, I saw a need, I saw a need and I said, well, I'm going to go handle that need. It just kind of, there's something about, I don't know if it's basketball managers or basketball coaches that just learn to think ahead a little bit. So tell our listeners about how you learn to think ahead a little bit and help, help your program. I think the first thing is there has to be a trust between the head coach and the assistant. Fortunately, him and I have developed that trust over the years. You know, I've had people ask me, you know, when are you going to go back to being a head coach in high school? He allows me to coach. I do a lot of the coaching on the floor. He's not a, and I guess maybe because he's been there 23 years, you know, he allows me to take over practice and do the coaching. But my first year there, his whole staff had left. Um, And, and, you know, no issues, just, you know, division three, being an assistant coach in division three, the money's not there. And, and for whatever reason, you know, his three coaches all had to leave. And so I came on the first year and got thrust right into it, which also kind of forced us to develop a trust early on. And I got to see what he was all about. And early on, it was, it was tough because you don't want to step on anybody's toes. And like I said, as a young 27 year old, you think, you know, it all. And then you realize you really don't know that much. 
Um, but we developed a really good relationship early. And then from there, you just know what to expect. Like I know, like I'll tell our new assistants whenever we get them, when they come on staff, when they're ready to present a scouting report, I tell them, make sure he's going to ask you this in front of the team, you know, who inbounds the ball. Do they inbound the ball, you know, on the right side of the basket all the time? Where do they initiate their offense all the time? You know, what, what did, he's going to say to you, what percentage of the time do they ever initiate on the left or on the right or so on and so forth? He's going to ask you this. And the worst thing that can happen is you don't have the answer in front of the kids. Okay. And early on, there were some times where I'm looking at him and I'm like, uh, you know, and you're stuttering. And then he would get you right in front of the, right in front of the team uh, because it's your job. So he forced me early on to, to get prepared and to make sure I know all these tendencies. And, and listen, it wasn't a matter of, of not wanting to work. It's just, you don't know. Every coach is different. You know, we, when, when a, a ball handler splits two defenders, we call that don't get split. You can go to five other programs and they'll have a different term for the exact same concept. So, you know, it, there, there's always going to be some growing pains. Um, and that first year was tough because there was nobody else to kind of help me along. We were all new. Now it's easier because when we do bring a new assistant on, I'm able to kind of get them and say, all right, listen, this is what he's going to ask you. This is what you need to be prepared for. Make sure you know this amount of out of bounds plays or these sets or so on and so on and so forth. Because when we go into a game, I mean, if you've ever seen, and, and I have to give credit to, our former associate head coach, Mark Cameron, who, you know, who lives down in Georgia. Um, Mark would stand up on the sideline when I was the number two assistant. Mark would stand up on the sideline and scream the other team's offensive action before they did it. So our players would know. And I learned that from both Mark and Chuck. And now I do the same thing. And the assistant coaches with me do the same thing because it's about being prepared and having our kids in the best position to win. There's so much about that answer that I love. And it's just, I, I feel like I'm getting to know, I mean, really through this podcast, getting to know coaches directly like you, but then getting to know coaches indirectly through stories like that that you just mm -hmm. told. I mean, what a, what a culture it sounds like he has created there of, yeah. of winning and of accountability. It's not shame. It's just, do your job. Like yeah. this is, we need to know everything that they're going to do. Like you just said, to put our kids in the best position to, to, to win and be successful mm -hmm. because it's about the kids and, you know, and it's so, it just sounds like a, a fascinating culture that he's created. Up there. It, it really is like what he's done in 23 years up there. Um, I mean, he's one of the winningest coaches division one, two or three in the state of New Jersey during that time period. I mean, for the most part in 23 years, if I had to ballpark, we've been ranked in the top 25, you know, 16 or 17 times, we went to the final four a couple of years ago. Um, like it's, and a lot of that is him because Rampo basketball was not good before he got there. I mean, they had gone to the final four in 91. Um, but other than that, they weren't very good when he left Western Carolina to take that job. And he took the job just to get closer to home. You know, he's, he's from North Bergen, which is in, you know, in North Jersey. And, you know, he wanted, you know, to get closer to home. And what he's done is, is year in and year out. Um, the fact that we are normally one of the best teams in that conference over that period of time is just remarkable. And that's, that's just, 
that's all about him and what he's done, bringing in the right kids and putting in his philosophy. It's, just, it's more evidence that when I come to New Jersey to see the de Blasio and, and see all those connections that Chris has talked about, I got, I got to watch some, some Ramapo, Ramapo basketball when I'm up here. Absolutely. I just need to, I might just need to move to New Jersey. That's what uh, might need to happen. But That's we'll, it. We'll see about all that. Let's get it. <laughs> all right. Get not, her done. not right now. <laughs> no, 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 not right now. Coach Gabriel, you know, the show is the greatest game. So this is the point in the show. I want to hear about the greatest game you've ever been a part of. I got a feeling that you got a doozy. So take us to the gym. Give us all those feelings about around this game and why it's so special to you. Uh, well, the game that that just, you know, sticks with me, it's, it's going to stick with me forever. I and mean, I think as coaches, we all have, have a, a handful of games. But the one that is just never going to leave me is the one from three years ago, uh, 2016-2017 season. We had kind of like we're, we're going through this this coming season. Uh, we, had, we were coming off an NCAA tournament team, and we graduated all five seniors, okay? And so we had a somewhat start from scratch, and we, we had a really good recruiting class. The problem was we threw these kids to the fire as freshmen. So – they, they started out great as freshmen, but as, you know, happens in high school, the same thing happened in college. Freshmen hit that freshman wall, and we struggled down the stretch, and their first year they didn't make the, the conference tournament. As sophomores, um, we made the conference tournament, um, fell a little short, and, you know, but we had showed progress. We knew this group because they started as freshmen and then started as sophomores. And we're like, well, when they're seniors, we're going to be really good. Well, it happened a year early. As juniors, we end up going, and the rec my record could be off. I think we went 28 and three. We finished the season. And so we lose two games in the conference tournament, in the conference uh, schedule all year. One was at TCNJ in overtime, which is a difficult place to play. Um, and the other one was at Jersey City State University, which is another place where I can't even remember the last time we, we went down there and won. Jersey City was our rival that year. We were battling for first place. We won uh, you know, the regular season title, so everything had to come through the Bradley Center. We beat them a week earlier at our place by eight or nine. In a game that we we had we were in control. I mean, you know, they got it to four and three, but one of those games. I mean, you guys know as coaches, where you didn't really feel threatened. You kind of knew you had it under control. Um, both of us got a buy in our conference tournament. We end up meeting in the conference championship with the automatic berth to the NCAA tournament. We hadn't lost a game at home all season. Uh, we were twelve and zero going into that game, and we're winning for about 15 out of the 20 minutes in the first half. And then Jersey city, who is not known for, for being a very good shooting team. All right. They're all about defense, physicality, and just beating you up on the glass. Um, hit five threes in a row. And next thing you know, we go down 11 at halftime. It's our largest deficit of the season. Okay. We hadn't been down by double figures at home all year. I remember going in the locker room because it was my scout 
and you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, you know. You didn't know they were going to hit five threes in a row? Come on, coach. You no. should have been known for that. You should have known that. <laughs> hey, there are times where he'll turn around and start yelling at you, and you're like, the numbers don't tell tell us that that kid's going to make a three, and then they make a one row, and you'll get it anyway. But um, ironically, and there are times where, where Chuck will, will get into the guys at halftime. There are other times where he doesn't. And he was pretty calm. I'm not saying he was calm inside, all right? But I remember after the game, people asked us, oh, what was, was, how bad was he screaming at them? And I remember saying he didn't. Like, we knew they hit five threes in a row, and that probably wasn't going to continue. And if it did, then they, they deserved to beat us. Um, and as juniors, they had never been in that spot. And I think that's what we were worried about the most. And they didn't panic. They didn't get rattled. And we came out in the second half. And defensively, we kind of flipped the script. We were a decent defensive team as juniors, um, but not like Jersey City. And we kind of gave them a taste of their own medicine. They had scored 46 points in the first half. And the second half, we held them to 18 points. Flat out locked them up. Um, And we finally caught them with about five minutes to go. And, And again, you know, the, the situation came down to um, they made a basket to go up one with 55 seconds left. We came down um, and the kid, our point guard who averaged like three points a game hit back-to-back threes to give us our first lead uh, the second half. He gets an open look for a three and gets it punched from, you know, from out of nowhere Jersey City recovers the scrambled ball, and now it's their ball. So they bring it up, and it's under 30 seconds, so they can run it out. So we're, you know, we're screaming our traps rather than foul right away. Um, and Jersey City called a timeout, and it gave us an opportunity because we don't have the ball, so we can't call timeout. But now it gave us an opportunity to kind of get set. Um, and I think what Jerry C want to do is get free throw shooters in the game. They weren't a great free throw shooting team at the time. I think that's what coach Mark Brown wanted to do is get some good free throw shooters in there. Um, we were able to deny the inbounds pass and we got a steal. And we went down the floor and they fouled us on a breakaway and they called it a flagrant. So now with about, I'm going to say, 12, 13 seconds left in the game, we're down one, and we're getting ready to shoot the two flagrant fouls, and we get the ball. And we were terrible from the line that night. I think we shot like 64%. And, I mean, not terrible, but, you know, we were we were up around in the 70s that year, 74, 75, something like that. And our kid goes to the line and makes both. We're up one. We have the ball. Now, the three officials disagreed on the flagrant. Two of them thought it should have been a flagrant, and one didn't. And so they inbound, they give us the ball under the basket. We're about to inbound it. And they call us for a five-second violation. Yeah, and (laughs) I went back on the film. Again, my scout, and I do all our film work, and I remember that night, saying there I could see the referee counting the three and then he blows the whistle. No. Not to mention a call five second count with 12 seconds left. And anyway, 
So now it gives Jersey City the ball down one with 12 seconds to go. And they go down, they drive with about 2.1 on the clock, and they call a foul. So the place is sold out, okay? I mean, we probably there are probably more people in there that should have been in there. They go to the line, and they miss the first. We call timeout, you know, to freeze them. In the hut now, again, goes back to our preparation. Chuck has every situation you could possibly think of on cards that we have on the bench, okay? I have these cards on me. So I know there's 2.1 seconds left, and there'll be, you know, a card for one second half court, one second three-quarter court, you know, five seconds, less than five seconds full court. So I take the card out for under five seconds full court because if he makes it, you know, we're, we got to take it out of bounds. If he misses, we got to get the rebound, okay? So I get the card out, and our, our junior captain, Tommy Bonicum who was an All-American that year, first-team All-American, he turns around and he says to Chuck, if he makes it, let's run the Villanova play. The year following when Villanova, the little toss back. So I'm looking at Chuck and I'm saying, he's a big believer, and I've gotten this from him, you never draw up a play on a board that you've never gone over in practice. You know, every play that we we show them, we've at least got over in practice a dozen times. So I'm looking at him and I'm waiting for him to say, Tommy, we've never even done anything like that. Well, he listens to him. <laughs> right? You guys, you know, we all knew the play and we practice half court shots and practice all the time. As crazy as it sounds, I know people say that we actually do at the end of practice. You know, the kids will mess around when practice is over and we have competitions a lot of times. So we're like, all right. Let's run it. So we go back out. We tell them box out because if he misses, we're up one. We got to secure the rebound. He makes it. We inbound the ball fast. Our shooting guard who catches it on the sideline takes one dribble up because he caught it around half court, pitches it back to Tommy who was at half court and nobody's covering him. And he heaves it up and he banks it in at the buzzer. And we win the NJAC championship and we get the automatic berth into the NCAA tournament. And the whole final minute was so crazy. Um, and then I think I think what kind of the icing on the cake was we had a friend in the stands who knew somebody at ESPN and they, you know, people nowadays with their phones, they sent it to ESPN and we were number six on the top 10 that night. Six? <laughs> number six. Yeah, right. And the, uh, at like the, the 2 a.m. Uh, sports center, whatever it was, we got the number six because when I came home, my wife had it on. She goes, look, you guys are going to be number six. And I remember seeing it after we celebrated that night. So there aren't too many games I can top the emotion of that one. You know, um, but that's probably the greatest game I've ever, I've ever been a part of. I'm exhausted just hearing about it. And I've heard about it. And I know, I, I, and I know the game. I've already talked to people about it. Yeah. I've talked to Tommy about it. I've talked to Josh Ford about it. Was Josh the one who hit those two threes? And then got a punch. No, Jimbo. Oh, okay, Jimbo. Jimbo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but Tommy uh, was a heck of a player, man. He he worked himself and, and became a great player. Was was conference player of the year that year as well, right? Yeah, conference player of the year, first team All American. He was up for player of the year. Ironically, 
if you go on YouTube and you look at the shot that he hit, the thing that people don't know is we ended up, we, we lost in the second round to Keene State in the NCAA tournament at our place. That was our only loss at home in three years, okay? After Tommy hit the shot, the students bum-rushed the floor, and Tommy got hurt underneath the pile. He, so people don't realize Tommy should, probably should not have played the two NCAA tournament games. He had the, you could say it's a hematoma, y'all, black and blue. They had to go in there and drain it. And during every media timeout, the training staff would come over and our training staff did some job even to get him ready to play. Um, but he could barely walk. Um, the ice baths, the heat, they were trying anything they could but he got hurt on the bottom of the pile after hitting the shot and was not the same the rest of that, you know, for the NCAA tournament. Otherwise we, we win those two games at home. I mean, Keene state was good. Um, we probably run into Babson who was number one in the country. They had a transfer from Boston college. They won the thing that year, but we probably run into Babson in the elite eight and probably would have lost that game, but we would have hosted the sweet 16 and elite eight where we hadn't lost if we had gotten out of that first weekend. So all, you know, so Tom getting hurt under that dog pile, you know, totally changed that season for us. Oh, I hate to hear that. Uh, <laughs> the dog know, pile injury. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. You know, coach, we, we, you know, Chris and I we both work for Dave Odom and he, one of those coaches has got great sayings. And one of the sayings that he loved to say was the game's going to pay you back. And you talked about the defensive effort in the second half. I'm looking at the stats right now. Y'all held them to six of 22 from the field, 27%, and then came storming back and then banked in a three at the buzzer. And that's just, a, to me, is just a perfect evidence, an example of the game's going to pay you back. Y'all brought the defensive effort, and then, oh, by the way, Tommy Banks in a three from, from half court. So can you tell us more about that that defensive effort and what y'all did ratchet up in the second half? You know, the the here's the the funny thing about that. We were a pretty good defensive team that year. Um, if I remember correctly, I think we were like third in the conference in defense. Um, and Chuck's philosophy has always been to outscore opponents. You know, let's get teams into the eighties and so on and so forth. And, you know, we're going to, we're just going to wear you out. And that team was different because we didn't have the athletes that we've had in the past. And so we had to grind it out a little bit more that half of basketball is probably the single biggest reason why that same team, because they were juniors, as seniors, went to the Final Four. They saw what happens when you dig in on the defensive end. You know, we, we as coaches, we try to tell our kids all the time, you know, defense wins championships. But I think kids look at us sometimes and, and feel like, eh, that's just a coach, you know, saying what all coaches say. That team got it. And what happened was, you know, we, we took a foreign tour that summer uh, and played, you know, the NCAA allows colleges to go on a foreign tour once every three years. And because we had a senior team coming back, uh, we did that, which allowed us to practice for, I think it, we're allowed 10 days of practice. So you practice for 10 days and then you could travel mm -hmm. so to Canada with that group. And all we did was just continue to build on, on our defense and when they were seniors, we went to the final four 
and we were the fourth ranked defensive team in the country. And we just flat out locked people up. And I think from that, that half of basketball where they saw, wow, we gave up 46 points in one half. They're on pace for 92 points. And we held them to 64. And if we don't give that effort, we don't win the NJAC uh, tournament. And I think the kids just said, wow, this is, you know, if we don't score, we're still going to win games. Because Jersey City still played defense in that second half. It wasn't like we lit it up uh, offensively. Our numbers wasn't like we shot, you know, 60%, you know, in that second half. But our defense was so good, and we we took care of the, the backboards, which Jersey City always wins. Um, that half of basketball was so much bigger than just winning the conference tournament. It propelled those kids to the run they had a year later. I was going to make a point. I don't know what it was. That's a great point. That's a great <laughs> point. Well, I tell you, you talk about the the practicing. Uh, I'm looking at an article here. Um, it's a, me and my teammate Chris Mosley. Every day after practice, we practice those shots. People think it's a joke, but you never know when that situation is going to happen. And some days you make them in practice, and some days you don't even hit the rim. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just, uh, yeah, just. Uh, that preparation factor, kids just having fun. And then, oh, by the way, just, just want to turn them and make it in a three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, uh, that was a good, that was an excellent team you guys had. It was some great players, some great Bergen County kids, some North Jersey kids. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always work camp up there and get to know those guys. And, and uh, they, they bought into everything you guys were, were talking about. Like I said, a kid like yeah. Tommy, a kid like Chris Mosley, out of Fairlawn, you know, you re- those special groups, man, you, you remember them. You Yeah, we, we were so close. I mean, you do, you spend more time with them than you do your family. I mean, we go to Vegas, we went to Puerto Rico. You spend those three weeks in the summer in Montreal and nobody was happy about it except for Chuck. I remember the players saying, saying to me, you know, Coach Pat, and we're, we're missing, we're losing part of our summer for this and all this and that. And, and I knew I was coaching high school football at the time. And I remember saying to myself, I'm going to go from basketball to football. I was pulling three a days, double sessions for, with the college, you know, or double sessions with football to one practice with the co- I mean, it was so much. And I remember saying, saying to my wife in passing that this better, this better be worth it. We better make a run in the final four. Um, and ironically, we end up getting to a final four um, that year. But it comes back to sacrifice and it's hard. It's not easy. And, you know, kids nowadays want so much instant gratification. And that team was so good because they were all high character kids, all of them. They all bought in. They all, you know, it wasn't a me thing. It wasn't about, you know, my minutes. It wasn't about my points, my assists. It was just about at the end of the day, going one and oh and that's what chuck says all the time to our guys today it's just about going one and oh and they bought into that it was you know dig in get defensive stops and go one and oh today and when you have great kids i mean you guys know as coaches when you have great kids it makes you look like a genius you know it's (laughs) ain't about the x and o's it's about the billies and joes as they like yeah (laughs) and coach i've got i got a quick question on that you know friday we had paul pamacala from Passaic high school Mm -hmm. that um Coached under Bob Hurley and, and, and talked a lot about mental toughness and, and coaching his kids hard. And then during that episode, we learned about a kid that basically repeated a message back that he had been 
uh, you know, doling out all year long. And the kid says, no, we're going to destroy this team. And so I, I hear a lot of that and what you're talking about with y'all's kids. So just real quick as we finish up here, and I know Chris has got one final question here, but um, is that more of a recruiting thing or is that something that y'all look for in recruiting and then mold it into your kids? Or just I'm really curious about how y'all are able to get that out of your kids. I th- It's a recruiting thing. I think, you know, when you go into a gym, we already know that the kid can play. We've either seen film, we've been told, you know, from a coach that has a good reputation with us. Um, I mean, we're getting phone calls all the time from coaches. Um, you know, Chuck is, has, you know, called and text Chris about players when he was at Crestkill, you know, and the, and when you do that as a college coach, you do that because you trust guys. So we already know when we go into the gym that the kid can play. So when we get there, like I'll get there during warmups. I want to see what the kids like during warmups. I want to see, is he a hot dog? Does he go hard? You know, you could, you could tell a lot about a kid just during warmups. Um, you know, you do, you, you want to see how the parents are. Okay. How they act in the stands. You know, the, one of the first questions we'll ask a high school coach is, is he coachable? Because Chuck's going to coach the kids hard. You know, Chuck's intense. And if you can't handle his intensity because he wants to win, I mean, Steve paid me a compliment saying, you know, nobody wanted to win more than me when I was his coach at Elmwood Park. And then I think Chris chimed in and goes, well, maybe his boss up at, up at Rampo College wants to win more. And that's the truth. Nobody wants to win more than, than Chuck. And you have to be able to handle that, that you need to be mentally tough. And he loves his kids. You know, all our kids, he will do anything for them. Um, but we, we want to know the other stuff. We know they can play. We know we're going to be able to teach them certain things. And we know that they're going to fit into our, our you know, program philosophy. But are they coachable? Are they good kids? Are they going to class? You know, what type of students are they? Um, you know, and, and it is totally, we've, we've walked out of games after you see a kid get a technical or a kid's interaction with his head coach and like, hmm, we don't want that in our program. That's not what we're about. And obviously he's doing something right at the college because all he does is win for 23 years. Well, coach, that's going to bring us to our final question. I was so glad you said they already know you can play because I always tell kids that same thing. They already know you can play. They've got that down. They're looking for everything else. So the final question is, what is something, if I talk to Coach Herget and I talk to some kids that played for you at Clifton and I talk to some kids that played for you this year at Ramapo College, what would they say is the one thing Coach Gabriel always says? Uh, Like, what's something you always say? It could be in practice during a game, something that they remember. It could be funny. It could be instructional. You know, um, when I, I heard you ask Steve this, I remember when the podcast was over, I said to my wife, I said, what is something that, you know, the kids will mimic me about um, that I say? And ironically, you know, Brian, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the head baseball coach at Hasbrook Heights and, um, you know, where I teach here in New Jersey. And so there is one quote that that I've been using probably the past, I don't know, seven or eight years and you don't realize the impact it has, you know, on the kids. And one of my kids is going to uh, Penn state um, and he's going to play baseball. And he said in the newspaper article, he said, the one thing I'm going to take to Penn state with me is 
the quote that coach Gabe says all the time. And it's that, um, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And I say that all the time to the kids. And I stole that from Chuck because Chuck says that to the team all the time. And I know my high school kids would turn around and, and if you ask them a quote, I say all the time, it's that one, uh, especially to motivate them and get them going. If there's one little comment that I have to say at the college and with the high school kids, um, when I get sarcastic with them is I will, I will just turn around. I'll say it to umpires or referees too, but I'd be like, ah, dumb stuff. You know, when a kid does something stupid or something like that. And so when a kid drops, you know, a fly ball or they turn it over, you know, like a foolish turnover in practice, they're like, oh, dumb stuff. And the kids will start to mimic me. You know, if, if Chuck is throwing me the basketballs and I fumble one and drop it, you'll definitely get a kid that will say, oh, dumb stuff <laughs> in practice. And like, really, and, and I'll look at them like, really? And they'll start to laugh because it's the one word that I'll say all the time. Yeah, I don't always say it that clean, you know, <laughs> substituted for dumb stuff. Right. But, you know, pretty much that's, that is the one comment that I will say the most. I'll say it in class too, to my students. You know, if, if they do something, you know, that that's not overly intelligent, I'm like, oh, dumb stuff. And you, you chuckle out of the kids and stuff like that. And they'll say it to me, that's the one word probably that I'll say more than anything else. Although I always use the clean version in class. Yes. Right. <laughs> always the clean version in class. Well, we appreciate you keeping it clean here. And like I said, we were talking before we hit record, we got to figure out a way to maybe put behind a paywall the, uh, the non-clean version, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that, uh, we'll see. We'll see if we can make that happen. But, Coach, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear your stories, to hear the story about your greatest game. We're going to put a link in the show notes to the actual shot. The number six, I, can't, I still can't believe ESPN put it at number six because the actual shot is incredible. He sets his feet. It's, it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. He did a great job of explaining it. And just can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I had a great time. Well, for my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I am Brian Rosefield. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Game.